The Sporland Division of Parker Hannifin Corporation is sponsoring this podcast. Sporland is the leading manufacturer of HVAC and R components. Using quality materials and craftsmanship, Sporland maintains a commitment to innovation, manufacturing excellence, service, and support for its customers since 1934. The company is known for its catch-all filter dryers, thermostatic expansion valves, solenoid valves, pressure regulating valves, suction filters, electric valves, controllers, supermarket monitoring solutions, chemicals, smart service tools, ZoomLock Max Press to Connect, and ZoomLock Push, Push to Connect Refrigerant Fittings. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. For a decade, field piece refrigerant leak detectors have set the industry standard for durability, sensitivity, and now reliability. Now our two newest detectors are raising the bar. The infrared refrigerant leak detector DR82 and the heated diode refrigerant leak detector DR58 bring the highest level of performance and offer a new bright blue backlit LED screen that is easy to read and understand. They are built to work all day and all night with USB rechargeable batteries that can get eight or 10 to 18 hours of use per charge. Learn more at fieldpiece.com or follow us on social media at Fieldpiece Products. Thanks, guys. We've all been there in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of the day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Corel, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, Click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc has all your solutions down cold. This uplifting cinematic experience. Uh, I've got something important to tell you, man. The big story is... Dig this and dig it.
force is strong with this one. What are you, eight? Welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're here with your host, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass. What are you doing? What do you, what do you got? Where are you going? Oh, I heard you're going somewhere uh, fun tomorrow. Well, I got to go to Ohio. I wouldn't call Ohio fun. It's like the most boring state in the world. I was thinking about that, and I thought maybe Utah. No, no. Utah actually has, like, mountains and stuff and, like, deserts. Ohio just has, it's like a... Slightly worse Michigan. Yeah, I can say that. Sort of. I mean, I don't know. I, I have to go to Ohio for like a day. At least I'm not dying like I was last week in Texas. Yeah, how how hot was yeah. it in, in Houston? It was 107. And I ended up with a double ear infection and a sinus infection. And I was dying every single day I was there. Yeah, the humidity the was no joke that. either. No, I, I could have ate a bullet every day and I would have been happy. Like, it was just absolutely horrendous. I don't know why people live there. They like living ne- next near the bay, I guess. I mean, I'll take a little bit of snow and some cold weather. That that was that was brutal. Plus, the, the sinus infection and the double ear infection was, you know, that was fun. You know, being on a scissor lift and, like, just getting dizzy. And that's why I got, that's why I ended up having to get my surgery when I came down here. So living here for the first year, year and a half, no, two years, straight two years, every year I got a sinus infection so bad that my ears had swelled up, my face swelled up. I looked like sloth in the Goonies and I would get vertigo for the first time in my life. And I was like, what the hell? Like, what is, what is different? And like, I realized it's, I was sweating more. So I was sweating more and I wear earbuds all the time. So I could, you know, when I'm in the motor rooms, whatever. And it would just block everything up scenario. So the next time I went to the doctor, I was like, I don't care what the hell you have to drill, saw, whatever you have to do, just clear it so it doesn't happen ever again. And I got the surgery and I'm a thousand times percent better. Yeah, they refused to give that to me. So, but uh, all right, guys, tonight let's, uh, we're going to go kind of back to the basics a little bit. And, uh, I've had a couple of apprentices ask for this. We're going to go over uh, self-contained 101. So not the most exciting thing out there, but I'll tell you this. I've watched self-contains kick journeyman mechanics ass, you know, time and time again, because it's something super simple, but super simple things get overlooked. So talking to self-contained guys, I mean, they are getting more complicated, but we're talking a compressor, a cap tube, a evaporator, and a condenser, and a temperature control. You're talking the basic self-contained, a true unit, anything like that. We're going on the basic. We'll start with the cap tubes. The, The number one thing, guys, keep the condensers clean. You keep the condensers clean, they're not going to plug cap tubes. Um, I've seen guys time and time again, they will add gas to a cap tube unit. They think it's low on gas. It's running low suction. They'll add gas to it. Turns out it's really a plug cap tube. So the way I approach this, I think is the easiest way out of anything. So if I come to a cap tube unit and I suspect there's a leak or a plug cap tube, instead of guessing and adding gas and doing all this, I will evacuate it, pull vacuum, and I will dump the charge back into it. And I will watch what it does. I'll scale it right back in, plus my added to my hoses. Um, after I do that, I will start the unit back up and see how it runs. If it's still running super low suction, then it's a plug cap tube. If it's not and it's running good, then we have a leak. I'm with you. I'm with you almost to the end. So the only thing that I that I do differently if I suspect that I'm that I'm low on charge first, because it happens so frequently, even on units that aren't even six months old, 
um, I'll pour water in the desuperheating pan or the condensate, whatever you want to call it, the condensate pan that uses the discharge line to, to you know, evaporate that water off. And typically you will find a leak in there. And I, I just, I, I, I'm apprehensive about just pull, pulling the charge because like, you don't know if you have a leak and then, you know, you, you try to pull a vacuum and then you have non-condensables in there, especially if you already have crap in the pan, then you're going to suck all that water back in. So I'd rather just leave it, you know, leave it pressurized and see if we can um, see any bubbles coming off the, the the bottom pass to that. Because usually those those are the first leak. Because you know you got to remember all the all the acids that are in the in the, the salads and, and salad dressings and stuff like that is going to uh, attack, you know, and, and you know get on the coil, right? Then that water is going to drain, go into the evaporate pan. Then you're basically left over with really acidic water, and then the evaporator evaporates off. I'm sorry, the condensate pan evaporates that off and then you are left with really acidic uh, juices that end up eating the crap out of that that pan. I left out one part. I usually will stick a leak detector in by the pan to see if uh, anything does go off before I pull the vacuum. Yeah, I mean, because usually, I mean, the, the, usually the only places I ever see those really leak are, is in the condensate pan or if it's in like a medium temp produce, it'll be the it'll be the evaporator. Um, yeah, generally it's always the evaporator or the condensate pan. <laughs> you know, I don't. And going back, I like I never understood why I had such a hard time uh, leak checking self contains. Like I had such a hard time with it. I, I have no idea why. Probably because I just didn't know how to use the damn leak detector. Well, not even just that. I mean, you're talking something that's leaking. It holds, you know. 10 ounces and an ounce and a half low, it's, you know, it's causing performance issues. And you're talking, it may lose that ounce and a half over a year. Yeah. So you're talking at the, at the, um, at the bare minimum, you, I mean, it could be a super tiny leak defined. So like going like, like Brett said, like, like the Kell cap tube thing. And if I do have a plug cap tube, and if it's an emergency, this is something you could do. I don't recommend doing this unless you actually have to, is pull the cap tube out and cut two inches off of it. I mean, generally, the, the blockage is in the first two inches of the cap tube. So if you have to, generally, it's in the first two inches and change the dryer to a cap, 032 uh, spoiling cap tube dryer, not, not those copper spun ones. Those spoiling cap tube dryers are a lot better. So, so note on that, whenever you do do that, you have to make sure that you compensate for the additional charge. On every single spoiling uh, filter dryer, it'll tell you how much refrigerant to add based off of what refrigerant you have. So if you're using R22, it might tell you to add for an O32, it might tell you to add like two ounces. Because you got to remember that that uh, filter dryer now is acting almost like a mini receiver. You will correct and so the system's going to add 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 capacity you need you're going to need to add capacity of charge to it in order to you know to right. make sure and it's not undercharged sure. same thing for your hoses so like uh i think a six foot hose holds is it two ounces or four ounces you know what honestly usually usually what i'll do is i'll from my center hose to where, because I always have ball valves on every every end of of my gauges. So when I charge charge the thing up, I'll figure out okay if I just release the refrigerant and the tank drop down three ounces of of liquid, then I know that they actually hold three ounces of liquid from where the ball valve stop. And that's how I'll figure out how much additional yes, yeah. charge that I have to put add in. I want to say it's four ounces, allegedly. Earth. Per um, six foot hose. Well, I don't use gauges, so I'm only using one hose. Oh, okay. That's another thing on, on self-contained guys. Uh, avoid gauging up unless you absolutely have to, unless you're using probes. The, the self-contains and ice machines are like a game changer for probes. So, I mean, you're talking, you're going to lose your know, smidgen of an ounce. Whether if you're hooking up a set of gauges, you could lose four to six ounces, you know, on something that holds 14 ounces of gas is a lot. Question. Question. Yep. How much is a smidgen? You're an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) 
I've, I've never heard measurement. I've heard mouse fart. Oh God. Um, so yeah, I mean, using, using probes, I have started using temp probes for a lot of things. So like generally with a self-contained, I'll throw a psychrometer, like psychrometer inside of the, uh, inside the case. And then I will grab, uh, some temp clamps. So an outside in an ambient air uh, temperature, and then I will take suction temperature and I will take my liquid temperature and using like measure quick, almost like how they do the, uh, the CTOA and what your uh, evaporator temp should be. You could get pretty close to like seeing how that unit is supposed to run. So you, if your liquid temp is, you know, room temp, you know, you got a problem. Like hundred percent. So, so Go ahead. One of the, one of the things I, I do do now, now people will ask me, you know, what is the proper way to charge a self-contained? Basically it's, it really is simply is pull the whole charge and, and charge it back up. Um, when I do PMs to make sure they're, they're functioning the way they should, cause I'm not going to throw gauges on every single time I do a PM cause some of these systems now don't even have it, but here's a good estimation on if the unit is working properly and, and correct me if you don't agree with me. I mean, this is just something that's worked for me for the you know past couple of years, whatever your ambient is in your store, right? Typically a store is about 75 degrees. Now you can estimate that most split or uh, single condensing units have about a 20 degree TD. So you can estimate that your saturated condensing temperature should be approximately about 95 degrees, 20, 20 degrees higher than, than the ambient, which was what I stated was 75. My, minus five yeah. degrees because you typically get about five degrees of subcooling out of a condenser then you, your liquid line temperature should be about 90 degrees and as long as the amperage is is within tolerance of what the compressor said it should be pulling i think you're golden yeah i mean that's, that's not bad for like an uh eyeball i mean you're never going to beat the you know the scale charge i mean that's no, but if you're, you doing right just a, a P, if you're just doing a, a PM where you're 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 breezing oh, through, yeah. you're, you're hitting the, hitting the condenser out, taking the amperage and just checking that liquid line temp versus you know versus the you know subcooling, the saturated condensing temperature, and all that stuff put together, right? Bingo. Yeah, I mean that that's that's what I'm going for here. Like that's where I was going with the with the temp clamps. You know, watching that and then check checking the amp draw and then seeing how it's cycling. So, like the biggest thing with these guys, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these units are, they have uh, constant cut-in cold controls in them. So, a lot of them, they have a temperature control shoved inside the coil. So, it's called a cold control technically. So, what it's doing is it's actually sensing the inner coil temperature, and that is how they're cycling the box temperature. That's why you'll see, like, especially Trues and Delfields, like your cheaper brands, when they start plugging a cap tube up you'll usually get a call for a box running too cold before that. Like randomly, it'll, you know, it'll run too cold. So what happens is the center of the coil doesn't make temperature because the cap tube is plugging and the outer parts of the coil still pull down and the box overshoots temp because that temperature uh, uh, control is not sensing the coil temperature down to temp. So say if it's supposed to cut out at 18 degrees coil temp and it's only getting to like 20, it's still gonna overcool the box. But that liquid refrigerant's flashing off before it hits that cold control and it's not allowing it to shut off. That's why you'll see some nuisance uh, over or uh, overcooling uh, complaints before you'll see a plug cap tube. So a lot of times going through um, that, that pigtail should probably be near the first pass of once it, once the uh, cap tube enters the coil. And that's because that's going to be the coldest part of the coil. A lot of these ones that he's talking about, cause I mean, you're not going to have a huge defrost clock on a single medium temp case. So a lot of these have a, what's called a constant cut in. So no matter where you turn that dial, that's the cutout. But the cut-in is always the same. So typically they try to make it 40, 41, 42, whatever the manufacturer spec 
um, for that particular unit. And then the only thing that actually changes when you're actually turning the dial, that's why it looks says colder, is basically the cut in temp, uh, cut in temperature. So if you're trying to maintain, I don't know, 30, a 30 degree box, maybe it has a 10 degree TV. So it's going to wait until that whole coil gets at 20 degrees. So it's going to, you know, get you, that's how you're going to get your, your discharge air. Except for it's not going to let the unit come back on until the coil is completely, you know, uh, clear of frost at the 41 or 42 degrees. Yeah, a hundred percent. That that is exactly what's going on. And you guys got to remember, most of these units are the cheapest of cheap. Like, I mean, that that's why they're not having defrost clocks on here. And I mean, they're they're built very cheaply. They're not cheap, actually. Like a fucking true two door cooler is like seven k, which is outrageous. Um. So just keep that in mind with those constant cut-ins. A lot of stuff you're going to start seeing now is you're going to start seeing like the Excel controllers and Corel controllers. And a lot of these units are starting to get uh, microprocess controllers in them. So, I mean, they're getting better. So constant cutting controls are starting to cost more probably than digital controls at this point. So you're starting to see more, more and more, but I see a lot of problems. I don't know if you've seen this when they say they put a Dixel controller in like an XM controller and they're using that to cycle the compressor. It seems like they have a super high failure rate. It can't handle the contacts. Yeah. My, my advice, if you have a failure like that, where it bones out one, one controller is typically because it doesn't, it doesn't take the inrush real good. So, I mean, I would suggest putting in uh, a pilot relay for it. So then basically the only thing that you're running is the control voltage to the pilot relay, which is going to work the contact that you're going to install. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I do anytime I lose a controller like that, because, I mean, a, a $25 relay is a, you know, $200 insurance policy. That is not going to happen again. Not with all the back orders and shit, you, you know, you're like, well, just put something in it and then you have to run new sensors and, and whatever else. It's just a pain. I mean, you know, we, I, I found out the hard way. Um, and I had asked this question on one of the forums and I was like, what, what, what sensor is, you know, will go good uh, with this stick cell controller. It was one of the ones that you pulled off the shelf for United and everyone's like, Oh, I'll just put a CPC sensor in there. Just put a CPC sensor in there. So I did. And then I started waiting down the temperature and I'm like, wait a minute. I started like the temperature didn't match my, my uh, thermocouple. Once it started getting like in the, the low 40s into the 30s. Um, and then that's when I realized it was still a 10K sensor, but it was a 10K type 3 rather than a 10K type 2. Um, and a lot of these other sensors, I have no idea what the hell they're putting in. So Corel, I'd have to heat them all up to 77 degrees and take a shot in the dark of which one I thought it was. Um, you know, I mean, Corel's, I, I Corel's making a dick. What's that? I usually stock the Dixel stuff just so we can use a CPC sensor. So you can't? So you can. I don't think you can't, though. Those things yeah, are you set you, for... You could change it. Yeah? You, you could use a Danfoss sensor with, with a, uh XM controller. Are you talking about the XM or are you talking about like the CX like multi-use Dixel? Say the, the multi-use DXL. Okay. So you, you have three different options. You have a PT-1000, you have uh, their version, and you have a PC sensor. Hmm. At least on like the ones in like the last two years. I had them on my truck, but I, I, I don't know. I had, I had one 240, one 24, and one 120, I think. Just yeah, I was carrying one like that, that. That's what I use for like even walk-ins and stuff. But like, so like if I got a bad call control, I know this is like kind of like against you know guys. I'm not usually putting a call control back in. I usually retrofit a Dixel in. Hey guys, today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries serviceable oil floats. Many oil separators contain an oil float to effectively meter separated oil back to the compressors. 
Westermeyer Industries has taken this concept and perfected it. With their new line of serviceable oil floats, these floats feature an improved design with fewer components, allowing for greater manufacturer consistency and up to 20% increased oil flow versus their legacy models. These floats also feature an integrated magnet to shield the oil path from debris and have been field proven in supermarket applications. Westmeyer Industries offer replacement oil floats not only for their own separators, but also cross-compatible models for our competitor oil separators as well. You can find out more about the Westermeyer Industries serviceable oil floats by visiting westermeyerind.com backslash floats. Once again, that's westermeyerind.com slash float. Let's get on with the episode. All right, guys, here's question number two for the month of June for the Field Peace Giveaway. Once again, answer the question and send it on over to ARPGiveaways at gmail.com. What is the signal that is given to a IDCM module from what to what would be zero to 100%? Let me know. I don't know what my kids are doing back there. Jeez, old Pete. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll usually write. I usually retrofit a Dixel in. So, yeah. I mean, it seems like it, it, you get way better control out of it. I guess. And my daughter's upset. She didn't get a piece of pizza. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're the dog ate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So, like, now, kind of moving on some more, like, uh, you know, Cumbersome receiver, so like receivers, receiver type yeah. stuff. Yeah, so like smaller stuff with receivers, just be very, very careful charging these things. Like, don't clear the glass until the thing's almost down to temp. I mean, they're very temperamental. Like, you're talking a receiver that may be the size of like a water bottle, so it's not going to take very much liquid. Mm-hmm. And then, um, same thing. Check in subcooling on like some of that stuff. Uh, if you don't, if you don't have a sight glass, you at least maybe check subcooling on the outlet of the condenser to see if you actually have some liquid there. Yeah. What do you think about the the like the coal pack units, the ones that are on? Uh, should I even ask this question? I know I'm going to get the answer. They're not the bad. Units that are- they- the one, the ones that are on top of the walk-ins, where it's basically a self-contained, just sitting on the top of a walk-in. Self-contained. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I have so much disdain for those things. That's why, I, like, I, like as I was asking the question, I'm like, "What do you think he's gonna say, idiot?" You never mind. <laughs> oh, we used to do like a my first star was an apprentice. We did a lot of Chicago public schools which yeah. are like the worst of the worst, like nasty. Like they had all those things like shoved everywhere. Those fucking boxes are a pain in the ass to work on. <laughs> I just hate the fact that like one little minuscule piece of whatever lands in that freaking drain pan, forget it. And then you're, you're there and, um, and they never, they never call until there's a Mount Everest laying in the middle of the walk and like just happened yesterday. Yeah, what are you supposed to do about it? Like, it's not like you could de-ice it because half the time it's going to like an evaporate pan. So, yeah, not a big fan of those. Um, no. What about the? Uh, have you done much work with the with the coal pack units? With the, uh, I think coal pack makes them with the uh, glycol condensing uh, self-contains. No. So they make. Uh, we have a couple stores with them. So they make uh, little, they're little mini glycol chillers and they are running the rail and they're running the, uh, the actual box off of glycol. Okay. So they cool down a little glycol reservoir, almost exactly like the, like the hill uh, pans. The seafood ones. Yes. Okay. So they're using those. I mean, they seem like they work pretty good little mini pump. I don't get the whole uh, caveat behind it because it seems like a huge efficiency loss. 
because now you're cooling down glycol. Now you're cooling down. Now you're using a pump. I mean, I don't get the whole thing with it, but like, apparently they're like super popular with like a lot of restaurants. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, you, always with the, I mean, whenever you have exchange of anything, right. It, it doesn't matter. You're going to get some, some temperature loss, some energy loss there. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it's going to, it, no matter what, it's going to lose out to a DX system in efficiency. Yeah. Or they are expensive, like 12 G's and up wow. for a prep table. Cause I went to go condemn one, one time and I got yelled at for like 20 minutes about it. So some of the other stuff that you'll see uh, with the, the smaller self contains, um, obviously the, the packing on the, on the receiver, uh, can leak, uh, looks like the only way you're going to uh, put it, be able to tighten it up is with a spanner wrench. Um, I think Bonnie forge makes a socket. You have to, yeah, you have to I have up- one. RF14, I think is what it is. I found one on eBay. Like, they don't make those anymore. And you, ha- the only other caveat to that is that you have to have the um, the uh, the stem halfway seated in because of the, the prongs on it aren't long enough to actually go up in. I've never actually used it, but I have it. <laughs> I've, I've used it several times. It's, it's rather handy. Because then you, if you do have where the packing is totally gone, then you could, you know, you can repack it with a multitude of things. So um, I've used uh, Teflon tape and, you know, uh, maybe a piece, maybe five or six inches long and uh, uh, rolled it, rolled it out into like a small little line and then covered it with uh, never seize and wrap it, you know, wrap, take the packing out wrap the stem up and shove that in there. And when you tighten the packing, when you put the packing back up, it basically expands that nylon and, uh, you know, makes it, makes it seal back up. And I've had, I've had luck with that, even on rack stuff, uh, discharge lines where they're leaking out, leaking up discharge and they don't want to, they don't want to do anything about it. Uh, obviously the piece is going to be longer than five inches for, you know, for like a discharge valve, but nonetheless, you could, you could do something like that. Blue Monster tape works great for discharge valves. Yeah, just uh, uh, no no ra- no no lubricant around it. Just the the monster. I usually just like put some nylog on it, like roll it up like a like thin roll, and just shove it in there. So yeah. one other thing, guys, when your service is self contains and you think there's a leak and you got to gauge up to it, before you do that, if you take the caps off, look, you know, feel for a little bit of pressure behind there, but also. Um, grab your leak detector and check the check the Schraders first. I don't know how many times I've screwed myself, but uh, you know, looking for a leak, can't find a leak. I charge back up. I come back, come back a couple days later. It's low again, and sure as shit, we're losing a tiny bit of gas out of a Schrader that I missed because my gauges are on there and they're not leaking. Oh, by the way, service announcement. Service valves on compressors, on receivers, are not meant to have pressure controls on them where you can just mid-seat them. If it's a if it's a service yeah. valve on a compressor where they have an open port for a pressure control, different story. But as far as a service valve on like a receiver, and you're like, oh, I'll just put a fan cycling switch on that. Don't. Don't. Those valves aren't meant to be mid-seated all the time. They're, made, they're meant to be back-seated or front-seated, not mid-seated. Cause them to leak. Please don't do it. Yeah, I mean they're they're not designed for that. So like leak checking like the stuff with forty three gauges on there. That's a, that's another big one. So making sure you you actually like check that before, so you're not like pulling your hair out. And then starting components. I mean checking out starting components. I'm not the best with this. I usually have to go back to the Copeland book or check everything else out, but like using the Copeland mobile app to see what the amp draw should be or what the, what relay should be in there or what um, cap should be in there. And then actually check in the capacitors to see, to make sure they actually have the right capacitance. Because if you're having starting problems, checking the start cap, checking the run cap, 
Making sure the start relay is not hanging up. Oh, making sure the start relay is in the proper position. So yes. on a start relay, there should be, uh, you know, just like on the writing, there's there's a, a little thing etched in where it says top and there's an arrow pointing up. That's there for a reason. Uh, we had we had a unit where the starting components went through, I think, three or four times. So first person went through, changed out the shape down start components, and it looked the same. They just mounted it a little bit different. And because it was mounted upside down, it was making the relay not want to touch on initial startup. So it would put a lot of wear and tear on it. So that one would go bad because the other one was installed that way. We put in another one and another one. And lo and behold, I go out there with the starting components. And I'm like, well, I wonder what the hell is taking it out. And basically, it's because it was upside down. Um, it, it was making that relay not make contact all the time. So it would, it would just intermittently want to start. So make sure it's in the right direction. I have been burned by starting component, changing starting components so many times. I tend to not want to do it. So I'm on the fence about this, like ethically and like getting burned. Okay. Because I don't know how many times you're going onto a compressor. It's smoking fucking hot. It's, you know, been condenser fans out, you know, or like the starting components are crap and you go get all new starting components. It's cooled down. It runs. You're the hero because you fixed it for cheap. And then two days later, the compressor dies. I just, I, I drop them with, with, you know, listen, this could be it. Um, but if that compressor has worn down those starting components, now let me ask you a question because like, I'm, I'm, I guess in a pinch, I wouldn't be against it, but like, how are you uh, with like the Kickstarters and stuff? You know, the, the last Hail Mary ditch, just get that thing freaking rolling. So you don't have to get a compressor at two o'clock in the morning. Well, first of all, I'm not getting a compressor at two o'clock in the morning for a self-contained. Um, Why not? Because they can come pick up the band. <laughs> um, so, I used to carry some of those, uh, like, what are they, like, those Subco, like, three-in-ones or whatever on, yeah. the, on the van. It was, like, I, I would use those to test out, like, for, like, for, like, the smaller true compressors. I mean, we used to use those. Like, I would use them to test the compressor. So, use it to fire it up and make sure the compressor started and ran. And then I would let it run on there until I got the starting components. I used to do that a lot. I never really tried to Kickstarter. I beat compressors with a piece of wood. Yeah. Uh, people don't understand, like, you know, I just taking care of a self-contained will just lengthen the lengthen the life of it. I mean, it yeah, sounds stupid. That's it. That's really it. I mean, just keep the damn coils clean because then it's not going to overheat. If it doesn't overheat, then the oil is not going to break down. If the oil is not going to break down, it's not going to get all gummed up, tear up the compressor, and, and have high head pressure, which kills the freaking thing. Keep the freaking See, my, coils my clean. See, my role for the front and my guys, like, if, you know, they're working on self-contained. I don't care what you're there for. If it's too cold, too warm, if it's got a gasket out, I would blow the condenser coil. A, you get to charge your CO2. We're getting paid. You get paid for the CO2. And B, you're extending the life of that cell because now you're cleaning out the coil that's not going to get cleaned. And you're preventing a callback. Have you done much propane uh, cell contains? A little bit here and there. Most of my uh, propane self contained experience has been with AHT. And those things are like way overly engineered yeah we, we talked about that once before where you know they had like an analog output signal for their fans um just i i don't know it's like putting in the, <laughs> huh it's a self-contained still i mean you you could paint the pig however you want to paint it but it's still a pig yeah I mean, other than that, like I've done some like true propane work. I mean, most of the propane stuff is like cake. I mean, I still leave the the, the access ports on there, even though they say not to, because all you're doing is screwing the next guy. 
but they're so critically what? charged, man. That's the only thing. I mean, you, you've had hoses freaking, you know, not not seal up, you right? Yeah, I mean, have you seen the price of propane? No. It's fucking outrageous. What is it right now? More than R22. Come on. Yeah. That's freaking nuts. Yeah, it's it's outrageous. And it's hard to get. It's the other thing. So like more and more of these propane self-contains are coming in, like it, it's it's hard to get. Well that that's what scares me about the shortage on everything. Like all these CO2 systems going in, I got no problem with CO2. I just what my problem is is that there's just so many of them going in and with stuff not being able to be put in, like put in on time, like you're gonna blow the charge. How many it's just it's getting ridiculous. Everyone I, I see talk an to email going for somebody looking for a service valve between four manufacturers, nobody can find a suction service valve for a compressor. Really? Yep. Like what kind of compressor? Are we talking some oddball? Are we talking Copeland? What? CO2 uh, transcritical compressor. What the fuck? Yeah. Racks down. Empty, flat, no way to isolate it. Really? Oh yeah, I yeah. guess not, huh? Can't run without this compressor either. So the store is entirely down. Yep, flat. Not one of my stores, but it's somebody, another company that I know about. Um, well, I guess it's going to be on the news that the United States is short, shorting our food now. <laughs> I mean, like same thing with like fixing all these self contains. Like, I like Target's way of doing things. Like, they'll put the at a certain dollar amount, they just ax that thing. It doesn't matter if it needs a door gasket or if it needs a you know a cord. They're just gonna throw it away. Yeah. I mean, once once it hits that 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 end of life, it's done. But going back to self-contains, you know, just like any other refrigeration, it's knowing of how it's supposed to run. So freezers, you know, they have to go into a defrost. They typically, unless they're a coffin case, do not turn off the fans. Or I'm sorry, they do turn off the fans. So you're going to turn off the fans once we go into defrost. The heaters are typically going to turn on, raise that temperature up to termination temperature, whatever that might be per that manufacturer. Typically, electric defrost is, you know, 50, 55. Usually have a high limit in there or, you know, some kind of mechanical high limit safety, maybe set for 75 degrees so the coil doesn't overheat. And once the coil is done, done terminating, once it hits termination temperature, it's going to turn back on fans aren't going to turn on until that same termination temperature typically um they'll use the same one for the termination as well as the uh the to turn the fans back on and then once the fans get back down to or once coil gets back down to what would you say 20 20 about 20 or 18 degrees i know a lot of manufacturers i've seen some manufacturers say 28 but i don't feel comfortable with that i'd rather have a full frost pattern on a coil before I start up the damn thing. And you can estimate, you know, about what that's going to be. Say that again? I would figure at 28, you'd be slinging water still. That's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, even though it's it's below freeze, I don't know. I just feel more comfortable bringing it down, um, you know, closer, closer to where you know the whole coil is going to have an even frost pattern across it. So, but well, like I said, once, once it comes down to about 15 – 20 degrees uh, fans come back on and refrigeration just continues to happen. And it's just knowing, doing that cycle going over and over in your head where whether you're doing it with mechanical controls or electronic controls, controlling the defrost and the refrigeration, it's still the same theory. It's, it's the same thing over and over. Um, they just might have a little bit more bells and whistles. You know, some of these case controllers, you'll get into defrost skipping. You know, I know beacon beacons real big on that, or now it's not beacon anymore. It's, I want to say QRC. It's like changed like four times now. One thing I want to go over with the freezers that we left out. So usually in a, say, true or 
Dell field, it usually doesn't matter. Usually all of them use what's called a crankcase pressure regulator in the suction line. What this is doing is protecting the compressor. So this compressor does not have a lot of starting torque. Um, we're on a single phase, 115 volts. They got to keep it under 20 amps. So it doesn't have a starting torque and the load requirements that a normal compressor would, a three phase, 460 compressor, two way compressor that can handle a little bit of load increase. So what they use is, is this crankcase pressure regulator gets set at a certain amperage. So you set this by amperage. So you adjust it at peak load. So the warmest the case is, you throw your amp clamp on there, start the compressor up. You start running this thing in until the run load amps are right at where the compressor calls for, or the, the max run load amps. And then if you need to back it out, if, it, if it's too low, you back it out. It has nothing to do with evaporator pressure or anything like that. Uh, in this particular application, you're setting it off run load amps. Well, it's, you know, the valve is, the CBR is, is a crankcase pressure regulator. It's an outlet pressure regulator. So it doesn't give a crap, you know, really. It, it makes sure that the, the pressure uh, going to the compressor is not exceeding whatever, you know, whatever you might have. Uh, one instance I had, I had a compressor that was, uh, we were told that we were just replacing it. And then we found out every single time it would pump down um, and start back up after a defrost, it would be overamping by about two amps. And we found that 404, if the pressure on this particular freezer on this coffin case would get down to 40 PSI, it would be at full running load amps. So typically we'd have to braze in a, a crankcase pressure regulator. But in this instance, we actually installed a Sporlin SZP40 powerhead. And basically what that did was it that expansion valve in that instance, when you install it there, does not allow any refrigerant to feed until the suction pressure on the outlet of that valve gets below 40 PSI. So it will basically clamp down until that suction pressure gets below 40 PSI, and then it'll start feeding. It's basically doing the same thing as a crankcase pressure regulator. The only thing is crankcase pressure regulator is adjustable. Um, you know, the, the SZP40 uh, powerhead is not adjustable. So it's only always, trying to regulate it at you know that 40 psi if the pressure is higher than that seems like so you usually have one or the other you have a cap tube and a cpr or you have the zp powerhead yeah and then that that ended up uh increasing the longevity of the compressor because they said they were replacing that compressor at least i think once a year uh the other problem was they were they had a liquid line solenoid that was uh all the way at the condensing unit and the receiver was probably if you took a two liter and you lopped off the first lobby part of uh you know above the tag that's how big the receiver was so it was trying to pump you know x amount of feet you know 75 feet of, of line set in this little receiver so the pressure would just keep going up higher and higher so we, we ended up having to move the valve downstairs no harm no foul put the uh the zp uh scp powerhead in there and from my understanding no other problems Yeah, so I mean, you shouldn't really have to mess with open the factory. I mean, they should all be preset. All those CPRs should be preset when everything mm -hmm. comes out. So I mean, if guys are messing with them, same thing. If you pull the cap off and it's leaking refrigerant or anything, there, it'll lock the valve up and starve the compressor if it gets under the bellows. So one of them, I just wanted to bring this up because this is one of the most interesting things that I've ever seen. Um, so typically, you don't have a you know, many of different ports on these units, right? The more ports you have on it, the more potential you have for leaking. Um, I had a unit uh, that was just recharged um, and they, you know, they they swore that they did everything right. And, and uh, what was happening is it was right at the service valve. They had one of the service valves that's on the coping condensing units. They'll typically have a service valve that's bolted right before the compressor. So you can basically valve that down and isolate the compressor and cut out the compressor, brace a new one and pull the vacuum on it. Uh, on this one, there was no tap on the compressor. All there was was a tap or um, yeah, there was no tap on the compressor. It was only a tap before the service valve. So the problem was the unit would just randomly just shut down 
um, but it was shut down on, on low pressure. It had a dual pressure switch and we just randomly just shut down and then it would sit for a little bit. And I noticed that the pressure, once it got up past like, you know, 32 or, uh, I think it was like 38 degrees saturated, it would, it would then clear up and then the refrigerant would start feeding. Well, basically what was happening is you were, we had moisture in the system and going through that service valve was doing a little venturi and then all that moisture would drop on there, it would freeze right there. And then, you know, stop the flow of refrigerant to the compressor. The compressor would go off on low pressure, but you wouldn't see it because of where it was tagged in there. So just be mindful. Um, you know, same thing with when, when you're pulling a vacuum on these systems. Have the system energized and have the, if you have to throw on a magnet, if it does have a liquid line solenoid on this thing, put a damn magnet on it. Because uh, a lot of times they use non, um, they use, in, I'm sorry, they use internally equalized expansion valves, especially in the real small tonnage. Um, so what happens is if you have a liquid line solenoid there, that expansion valve, when you're pulling a vacuum, will basically trap air in between the liquid line solenoid and the inlet of the internally equalized expansion valve and basically trap moisture in there. Uh, a guy called me, he had a 134A system running at, I think it was 140 or 150 degrees saturated. And I'm like, that seems a little high. He's like, no, no, I pull, pull the vacuum. I said, well, check, check the line. And how, how low is your liquid line? And he had, I think, 70 degrees or 60 degrees of subcooling or something ridiculous like that. I was like, man, I think you trapped air in there. He's like, no, man, I had, I, like, I had my gauges everywhere. And I was like, just for, you know, just for shits and giggles, I said, you know, recover all the refrigerant that you just put in there. Put it off to the side. Energize the unit this time and or, you know, put a magnet on your on your solenoid. And he calls me back later. He's like, man, you're right. He's like, you know, that unit, A, pulled down a hell of a lot faster. And, and B, uh, you know, the system's working wonderfully. I mean, it was doing the it was doing the 20 degree rule of, you know, saturated condensing temperature above ambient. So it was working awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing with these is just, just make sure you pull good vacuums, good service procedures, keep them in a, you know, out of a, you know, million dairy kitchen and they won't have issues gaskets same thing with door gaskets making sure your door gaskets are good you know making sure that you know you don't have moisture coming in this these things cannot handle moisture removal they're not made to dehumidify so i mean you're going to eat up a lot of capacity real quick with that especially icing up if you have iced up self contains uh it's another big one checking the dexel controllers to make sure they're actually going in defrost and and or marking the defrost clocks without moving them first. Just mark the, mark the pins and uh, make sure it's actually turning. You know, that's another big one. If you have iced up case, don't just go you know, turning that. Or some of these will use a uh, cold control inside of it, you know, making sure that the actual cold control's cutting out when it needs to. If the, if the coil's iced up and cutting back in, you, you may throw a thermometer inside the coil and watch it. You got anything else? No, I think it's it for self-contains. All right. Well, guys, thanks for listening once again, and have a good night. Sorry, Mark.